0: If someone were afraid of the dentist, maybe they haven't been in a long time, maybe they're embarrassed because they haven't been in a while, I feel like this would be a really safe place for them to go and get the care that they need. At Advanced Dentistry, we get
1: it. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, if you want to learn how IV sedation can change your life, visit
0: NoFearDentist.com. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor.
1: I'm Ben Rhodes.
0: Ben, this is our, I guess, annual Thanksgiving mailbag.
1: I look Very forward thankful. to it every year. I'm thankful for it.
0: I'm thankful for the questions. I'm thankful for your answers in this just miserable, miserable pandemic Thanksgiving. We actually just canceled our, our oh, Thanksgiving plans. Yeah.
1: I canceled yeah. mine last week. I, I feel so bad. This will, you know, not seeing my parents. They'll be all by themselves this year on Thanksgiving. So, um, you know, a world though. Shout out to to my parents, but uh, yeah, it's just terrible.
0: Yeah. We were going to go to see Hannah's family. And then just the the case number, it just felt, it just felt irresponsible to do it. And it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, so you're scared to go visit someone because of COVID. It's not like being scared of flying where you get up and you get down and then it's over. It's like anxiety that's just going to live with you the whole time, you know, and then weeks after.
1: And when you're visiting older parents, you know, the anxiety is the minuscule chance, even if you wear an N95 and goggles and all the rest of it, you don't want to be bringing <laughs> COVID into your parents' house, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I wouldn't want to be like sitting there stressed all Thanksgiving about whether or not, you know, I'm bringing a deadly virus into my parents' home.
0: No, feels feels bad. Feels like feels something bad. I'd have to live feels with like for not a long what time. You're for. Yeah. Well, well, dear listener, uh, we're going to pick you up by answering all your foreign policy questions. Yes. And we're going to do so with a very uh, wry sense of humor because gallows humor is all we have left. <laughs> <laughs> um, by the way, uh, listeners, if you want to uh, get any Crooked merch, so we got a Cyber Monday deal coming up. You get 15% off site-wide discount at the Crooked store. Go to crooked.com slash store. They made me say this. I know that was a weird transition. So we're going to start by just drilling Mike Pompeo, because you know what? That's going to make us feel better. Uh, this is my mailbag ben.
1: question. My mailbag question is, could we devote some time at the top of the show to Mike Pompeo?
0: <laughs> so Ben, reporters traveling with Secretary Pompeo were just given uh, this readout of his trip to Israel. The secretary's visit highlights U.S. government support of Israeli businesses in the West Bank to operate free from international sanctions as part of the Pompeo doctrine. Uh <laughs> are you aware of secretaries of state normally naming doctrines after themselves? Is that a standard thing? Uh, The man's ego
1: knows no bounds. But I mean, I wanted to just pause and ask, what is the Pompeo doctrine?
0: Great question. Is is
1: the Pompeo, you know, they just assert it like we would know that it's this great thing. You know, the doctrine of containment was the Truman Doctrine. Is the Pompeo doctrine the unobstructed commerce of... Israeli settlements in the West Bank? Is that, is that the totality of the Pompeo Doctrine? Is the Pompeo Doctrine anything that further politicizes our foreign policy on behalf of his 2024 seventh place bid shaping up for the Iowa caucus? Like, what is this doctrine?
0: Where he barely loses to Tom Cotton for like fifth. Yeah. So let's just talk about what his trip has been. So he did three days in Paris, really roughing it there. Uh, He went to Turkey. I don't think he met with any officials. He did a religious freedom event that was focused only on Christians. Uh, Now he's at a a vineyard uh, on a West Bank settlement. He visited the Golan Heights. And uh, it seems like they're also, the State Department is attempting to curtail free speech here in America by directing the government to like, make a list of entities that support the BDS movement, uh, boycott, divest, and (laughs) sanctions movement. So yeah, Pompeo doctrine, I guess. I don't know.
1: I I mean, you know, we don't get too many more opportunities to do this. Like Mike Pompeo, it seems like has only devoted his time in office to issues that he thinks have a political benefit to him at home. But like like the record, you know, Venezuela – we had like the aborted, you know, coup that took place. Mm-hmm. You still have mm-hmm. special forces guys sitting in a prison there, um, with Maduro in power. You've got the Iranians, b- based on the recent IE reports, dramatically expanding their nuclear capability, and we're learning installing centrifuges that are more enhanced than the ones that they were using um, at the beginning of the Iran uh, oh, nuclear good. Deal negotiations. Great. Yeah. And and then, you know, the West Bank, I guess, if your goal is to make it impossible for there to ever be a two-state solution, the Pompeo Doctrine is a smashing success and de facto legitimizing Israeli settlement construction in the West Bank. Um, but I don't know. I mean, celebrating this kind of progress with a a bottle of Israeli settlement produced wine feels like uh, feels like about where we're at. Uh, never mind yeah. the other issues in the world that could get attention. Here.
0: Kind of gilding a lily. Yeah, it does seem like he's running for uh, president of Sheldon Adelson's Super PAC. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see how that goes. A lot of competition there. You know, you you kind of previewed this argument last week that I'm now starting to see a lot more, which is it does seem like on a whole host of issues, especially on foreign policy, the Trump lame duck plan is to try to do maximum damage and impede Joe Biden's agenda and or hamstring his presidency as much as humanly possible, potentially in a bid to defeat him in 2024, or just because they are a bunch of spiteful, vindictive people who don't give a shit about the country. Maybe both.
1: I, I know. I think, honestly, if you look at these kind of uh, rash, uncoordinated, unthoughtful pullouts from places like Iraq, uh, you could see the most cynical scenarios that they want Pots to boil over at the beginning of the Biden administration so that they can then launch investigations and 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 attacks on the Biden foreign policy based on what they themselves did. But I mean, I think one of the thing we have to talk about Mike Pompeo is this is a man who took over the State Department with this kind of absurd egotistical assertion that he was going to bring the swagger back, you know, maybe mm-hmm. taking a page out of uh, his favorite rapper Kanye West uh, <laughs> um, uh, litany here. But I mean, he's also destroyed the state department. I mean, he has yeah. probably the most negative reputation among the workforce, the most universally loathed secretary of state in the history of the state department, because he's ran the bus over any state department employees who called out the, Malfeasance of the Trump administration, and he's continued this kind of jettisoning of expertise in the foreign service. So this is a guy who is loathed by his own workforce, is loathed by the vast majority of countries that he works with around the world. What is the basis on which this man puts himself forward as as some kind of credible political figure, you know? Um, yep. th- this is a Fox News foreign policy that is designed to only appeal to the viewership of Fox News's primetime lineup. And and that's yep. been incredibly destructive in the actual world where people don't make decisions based on what the assertions are, the demands are of Sean Hannity.
0: Yeah. He's a he's a belligerent sexist bully who is making Rex Tillerson look good. And I never thought that was possible, but thanks, Mike. Good to know you. Uh, okay. Let's get to some of these questions because that was, that yes. was just fun. So, um, This first question came from Andrea on Instagram, Ben, which was, what foreign leader should Biden visit first? Um, Let me give you... So we talked about this uh, on Positive America, too. So I'll give you kind of like my circuitous thinking on this. My guess is that Biden's going to go to Canada or Mexico first. Like, I think that's pretty standard. It's it's important relationships in the hemisphere. Um, After that, my question is like, you know, how would you structure it as like a messaging opportunity, right? You could see like a big climate change focused group meeting of some sort, although that might be on the books. You could see a big summit on the coronavirus vaccine distribution or coordinating economic relief. You could see like a a NATO meeting uh, to reaffirm the alliance. You could see a trip to Japan or South Korea to reaffirm those alliances. Like, do you have a take on how you might message, sequence, and prioritize these kinds of visits?
1: Well, you know, first of all, hopefully there's a vaccine uh, or else foreign travel gets more complicated. I sure you knows. know I I think that not doing what Trump did which is not flying to Saudi Arabia for your first visit and staring into an orb posing next to the Saudi king and and C and the dictator of Egypt that, that, that was that's progress to begin with um I think that in this hemisphere, uh, usually you're right, it's Canada or Mexico. I'd go to Canada first, um, just because Justin Trudeau has been one of the holdouts for progressive leadership um, in this Trump era. And and has obviously been a bit challenging um, as a leader in Mexico. But then abroad, I think the couple principles I'd say are, first of all, what we did in the Obama years in 2009 is in that first uh, year in office. We went to every continent um, except Antarctica, but we went to South America, we went to Africa, we went to Asia, we went to Europe. It was a very methodical effort to try to restore America's standing. So yeah. I do think it would be wise to try to get to all the major regions in that first year. Um, I think in terms of his first overseas you know, non-Canada visit, You know, going to Germany and seeing Angela Merkel um, would make a lot of sense too. She's, you know, probably in the twilight here of her chancellorship. She herself would say that. So it's a kind of passing of the torch in some respects that she probably has a wealth of knowledge about what's going on in the world and what trends she sees that he's going to need to know. And there may not be that many more opportunities to consult with her. I think if you went to Europe, you'd want to hit a few different allies uh, on that trip to suggest... They kind of were back in the game and we're reinvesting in alliances. Biden's talked about having a summit of democracies early in his presidency, and I think that's critically important, both to restore alliances, but also to kind of restore support for democracy. Mm-hmm. And then I think getting creative when you go abroad and trying to, to bolster uh, democratic leaders, try to bolster... Progressive leaders, you know, maybe if you go to the Asia Pacific region, make a point of swinging by New Zealand to see Jacinda Ardern, is someone who we talked about a lot on this uh, show. But the bottom line is, I think you know, he he should get out there and he should be seen in different places, and he should signal by the leaders he visits that democracy and alliances are at the forefront of our foreign policy.
0: Those are those are very very good ideas and good leaders to touch base with. This next one came from Twitter how might a Biden administration handle the Israeli-Palestinian issue, particularly the recognition of Jerusalem? Will he further Trump's Abraham Accords or change course? So, Ben, I mean, there's rumors that our former colleague uh, and friend of the pod, Dan Shapiro, might uh, go back to being the U.S. ambassador to Israel. He served in that role under Obama and was also in the NSC with us. I think that's great news for anyone who wants, like, smart, decent good people serving in government. Dan's a great guy. He's really smart. But I also think it sort of signals an approach to Israel that is not antagonistic towards Netanyahu that will feel sort of like status quo kind of, you know, Democratic Party policies. For example, I don't think Dan, uh, or President-elect Biden, supported threatening to condition aid to Israel if they annex the West Bank. I think they both said that was a bad idea. So I don't know how the Biden administration will approach The Abraham Accords, I suspect they will talk about the pieces that are good. Like they'll acknowledge the fact that better relations between Israel and its neighbors is like a good thing in many respects. I hope they revisit the cost, especially the massive arms sales to the UAE. Um, I don't know. I doubt they'll move the embassy. It feels like it's hard to put a lot of the toothpaste back in the tube here. But like, what's your gut on how they will think about uh, this set of issues?
1: Yeah, I think there's very little space for any kind of major Palestinian uh, statehood initiative at the outset. Um, You know, I personally what I'd like to to see them do um, on the Abraham Accords, like you said, I don't think that they need to go through this massive arms sale. I think they need to scrutinize that arms sale in the context of their Yemen policy, for instance, in the context of how they're looking at the region. And if look, the only reason that the U, if if it is the case that the UAE only agreed to this normalization in exchange for a bonanza of tens of billions of dollars of weapons, you know that's hardly real peace here. So my, my sense is that the UAE would be unlikely to go back on that process, but I would think that they, they want to take a look at that arms sale. Um, then I think an important thing here is that Jared Kushner and the Trump administration did a lot of things to try to essentially, you know, starved the Palestinian Authority. Um, they cut mm-hmm. off funding to the Palestinian Authority. They kind of downgraded the representation yeah. of the Palestinian Authority in, in the U.S. So I think a good early project would be kind of reinvestment in the Palestinian Authority, restoring that relationship, restoring those funding levels so that you at least have a party in the Palestinians that we're once again talking to and engaged in diplomacy with, maybe trying to find uh, some some early wins that can be made in terms of improving conditions for the Palestinians. But then at a certain point, they're going to have to make a decision as to whether to invest uh, diplomatic capital in this issue and whether that takes the form of, you know, kind of recognition type policies for the Palestinians, Mm -hmm. whether it takes the form of, you know, more aggressive uh, efforts internationally against uh, continued Israeli settlements as we had at the end of the Obama years. I I think, you know, I'd like to see something in this space, but uh, I think you're right. I, I would expect a more... A more conventional approach from from the incoming Biden administration, but but at a minimum, they can at least arrest the the downward trajectory of of the circumstances the Palestinians and try to to extend a hand to the Palestinian authority and and begin to at least have a diplomatic partner there again.
0: Yeah, that would be good. Uh, actually, having you know talks that occur, you know, not I think it's been like what two years or a year and a half since the Palestinians have spoken to. The White House or the administration, they're, they're yeah. constantly denigrated by Jared Kushner and others within the administration. So, yeah, but, um, you know, probably not the place where Joe Biden's going to be the most progressive on foreign policy. Ben, a question for you specifically. So this came from a listener from the Caribbean. How can the Biden administration begin to normalize relations with Venezuela in a way that would alleviate the economic hardship in that country that has resulted from U.S. sanctions? Will the Biden administration resume talks with Cuba and open a path to finally dismantling sanctions on that country?
1: Yeah. So first of all, I think with Venezuela, I think you want to take a look at this uh, array of sanctions that have been put in place and try to separate out, um, are there sanctions that you know are imposed on the Maduro government or individuals in that government who've committed human rights violations versus what are the broad, more broad-based sanctions that might be doing harm to the Venezuelan people. Um, and I'd like to see you know, a rollback of, of sanctions that are doing harm to the Venezuelan people. That might go beyond... Um, what the administration is prepared to do, the Biden administration. But at a minimum, what you can do is start to carve out exceptions um, in certain areas so that certain types of goods are able to reach the Venezuelan people. Uh, But at a minimum, I think if there are going to be sanctions in place on Venezuela, which I'm sure there will be, how can you make sure that those are targeted on a set of individuals and a set of bad actors and not just kind of broadly punishing the population that approach is not working and it's harming Venezuelans i do think that there needs to be a bit of a diplomatic reset here and instead of only talking to the number of countries in the hemisphere who totally agree with us on this issue i think we have to talk to everybody and that includes the cubans and i think it'd be wise for the biden team to do something of a, a listening tour you know to go around get everybody's perspective left, right, and center about what the situation is in Venezuela and what can be done to kind of relaunch a diplomatic initiative. Uh, How do you begin to get the Maduro people and the Venezuelan opposition in the country talking to one another? Uh, Mm -hmm. And yes, I, I think you know, you do want to talk to the Cubans in particular, given the ties they have into Venezuela. You want to talk to the Caribbean countries who are often an afterthought in our diplomacy or only approached, you know, when we have a Venezuela specific ask. And Joe Biden here has a lot of uh, background. He had the lead in the second Obama term on most of our Latin America policy, including in the Caribbean, where we had a kind of energy initiative together with the Caribbean countries, so you know I, I think that that we want to kind of signal a, a reset here of a Venezuela policy that has not achieved anything other than really harming the Venezuelan people and and helping to entrench uh, Maduro and and try to figure out what is our objective here and and the objective has been kind of regime change, install Guaido in place of Maduro. Is there some alternative here to deescalate tensions and to move towards an election that can settle this issue rather than suggesting that the United States is going to pick the the leader of Venezuela citing constitutional provisions um, that, that we kind of cherry pick from Venezuelan law here? So, um, so I do think a, a reset would be well in order.
0: Yeah. You know, look, not to be a total hack, but like- the elephant in the room on some of this is the South Florida politics. And it does seem like the Cuban vote, the Venezuelan vote, the Latino vote generally in Florida kind of broke to Trump. And I do think we need to do a whole lot of uh, extensive canvassing and survey work and, you know, door knocking to kind of like figure out what it was that led a lot of those voters to support Trump. Because it was weird to see that it wasn't just you know, the, the conventional wisdom, right, was like, oh, Trump's tough on Cuba. Oh, Trump's tough on Venezuela. But it was also Puerto Rican voters in the Orlando area. It was uh, a bunch of you know, southern counties in Texas that are predominantly Latino that went to Trump. So I do think like that will be, if we're just being honest, like part of the conversation or something we at least need to figure out as a party.
1: And look, I I don't think making Latin America policy based on South Florida politics (laughs) has been a good- Hasn't been great, uh, no. Hasn't been great for US foreign policy for the last 60 years. That said, and as someone who has a lot of friends in that Cuban American community, I think there are two points I make here, Tommy, which is first of all, just being Trump light doesn't help Democrats either. You know, frankly, the Democratic right, Party right. was on board with Trump's Venezuela policy, most of it at least, um, yep. and that didn't help. And I think if voters see, well, over here we've got the Trump people who are the most hardline people possible, and then we have these Democrats who are basically, you know, tacking off of Trump. Well, who are they going to choose? You have to give people an alternative. If you believe that a different approach is the better way of dealing with Cuba or Venezuela, then make that case. And Barack Obama won the Cuban vote in Florida in 2012. You know, after he'd said he wanted to engage Cuba, after he'd lifted restrictions in some areas uh, on travel and remittances to Cuba, I think people down there at least respected. That Number one, we listened to them. And number two, when we disagreed, we went down there and explained what we were doing and what we thought. And and so I I really don't think the answer is to just try to get as hardline as they are, because we're never going to get to be as hardline uh, as they are. Uh, And and lastly, it's just, you know, maybe you're not going to win those voters over uh, on your Cuba policy or your Venezuela policy. And so we should just do what we think is right. You know, Um, uh, I know that's not always how it works, but, um, um, you know, it's what I, I think would be in the national interest.
0: Yeah, well, hope springs eternal. by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. The next question uh, from Instagram, what is Biden's stance on Kashmir? So we're talking about the disputed Kashmir region between India and Pakistan. So did a little digging on this because I didn't really know. Biden has been critical uh, of the occupation in Kashmir, and he's called on the Indian government to restore rights for the people of Kashmir and to stop restrictions on dissent or like cutting off the internet. I think Kamala Harris leaned even harder into this one during the primary. And, you know, like she's in a unique place. Obviously, she's the first Indian American vice president of the United States. So there's, I think, you know, interesting opportunity for public diplomacy for Kamala Harris in India uh, writ large. Modi knows this. He tweeted at her uh, when he finally recognized the Biden-Harris ticket as president-elect. Uh, he said, your success is pathbreaking and a matter of immense pride for all Indian Americans. So that was you know, a warm welcome. Biden more generally has condemned Modi's policies that stigmatize or discriminate against Muslims, uh, including efforts that could be used to deny citizenship to Muslims or possibly deport them. The challenge is going to be like, you know stepping back like figuring out how hard to push india on kashmir while also pushing them on climate change while also mediating tensions between india and pakistan and india and china on the border right and so like that's not absolving biden uh, of the need to focus on kashmir it's just sort of like an honest prediction that this will be complicated and they're gonna get pulled in a bunch of different directions. The good news is that like Biden and Harris actually care. They care about Muslims in general. They care about diplomacy in general. That alone is better than Trump, who is more than happy to let uh Modi, you know, run roughshod over millions and millions of people.
1: Yeah. And don't forget that Modi basically endorsed Trump for reelection at the Howdy Modi event in, in Houston and then did God, this I forgot of- about that. Bizarre joint event with with Trump in India. Um, at the same time as that event, um, there was some violent crackdowns taking place on, on Muslims in in Delhi. Look, I think it is a starting point. The Indian government should expect that, as a part of our regular diplomatic contacts, we're going to be raising these issues. We're going to be raising concerns about Kashmir. We're going to be raising concerns about certain actions that uh, kind of delegitimize or make second-class citizens uh, Muslims in India and that's just going to be part of the relationship and, and that you know they're going to have to deal with that and and hopefully that could lead them to take steps to alleviate the humanitarian situation in these places to alleviate the violations of, of rights and if they don't then you consider, what else you you can do and how how to to show that this is an actual priority in the relationship. It's a big, complicated relationship that has climate change, has trade and commercial issues, has defense uh, cooperation and sales, has geopolitical cooperation relative relative to China. But an equal pillar of the relationship should be human rights across the board. And by the way, we can make clear that that we recognize we're in a glass house you know but Joe Biden can go to Modi and say look I just rescinded my Muslim ban in my country on day one here you know wh- what can we do together to improve these circumstances um, yeah. so I, I think it it's unrealistic to expect he's going to come out you know guns blazing you know fist bared uh, against Narendra Modi the prime minister of a country of over a billion people but what he can do is is make it very clear that this is going to be a constant part of the agenda, a constant part of our dialogue, something we are raising, and that we want to see improvements in these areas, as we do everywhere, including in our own country. You know, um, And I think that I, I really do hold out hope that that can make a positive difference within India. It's not going to solve all these problems. It's not going to eliminate the fact that you know you have a new nationalist um, party in power that is moved in this direction, But but it can at least make things better for some people. And I think after the Trump years, we see, you know, even that type of incremental progress is good, and and hopefully it can lead to, you know, a broader reconsideration inside of India about some of these policies. One last thing I should say that Kamala Harris can do too is, the Indian diaspora has been largely supportive of Modi and the BJP right. in this effort, and the Indian diaspora is very influential. There are some very successful people. They have a lot of ties back in India. Hopefully, one of the other things that can be done is is you know enlisting the Indian American community to be more constructive voices. And that's not on Biden, that's on all of us, you know, and especially this community. And, and, you know, what that means is, that, you know, making clear, I'm sure if you're in the Indian- American community, you love and respect and have a lot of pride in, in, in your country. But, you know, just like you ha- would have concerns about certain behavior here in the U.S., you would in India, too. And you're going you're gonna to vocalize that. that, that India has to get back, like America, to seeing that diversity is actually a strength and democracy yep. is actually a strength and not, not a weakness.
0: Leah via Twitter asks, what is your process for reading, understanding foreign policy news each day? Do you read specific publications, Google alerts? How do you prioritize what to cover on Pod Save the World? Great question. Yeah, look, this is a huge change from from when you're in the White House, right? We had a, a clips packet each morning. You had the PDB. I had a bunch of intelligence products. There were situation room updates of anything sort of relevant in the world that happened. We all had you know, big picture meetings and memos on sort of like issues like Afghanistan that would help you deep dive into this stuff and learn. So there was like this amazing process to help you get information and to learn new things. And then on top of that, you know, you had this little yellow phone on your desk that could make top secret calls to like any expert in the government to get information. It was the coolest thing ever. To hell of a lot harder on the outside, right? I mean, first of all, we have uh, an amazing team here. Uh, our producers are Michael and Jordan, and that's on purpose, like number 23, they are the GOAT. uh, We also get amazing help from Quinn, who does great research. And like, I think that's so important because I don't know about you, Ben, but like my brain is biased towards things that I already kind of know and I understand. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just find it enjoyable to read about like the Iran deal, because I think I kind of have neuropathways that understand it already. And it's good to have people who push you to expand your horizons and like, dig into new things like i didn't know much about belarus until a couple months ago um we all flag articles uh throughout the week we dump them into a slack channel we dump them into a text chain i spent a lot of time looking at the times the washington post uh and bbc international coverage because it's all in english and it's all very good um i love when there's like a big heavy hitter new yorker piece about foreign policy and you can kind of like dig into ten thousand words by like dexter filkins or ron ayub or something um And then, look, Twitter surfaces a lot of great stuff. It's important to follow good people, internationally focused people and international press and activists there, too. You know, you have this, like, super cool network of, you know, Obama Foundation people on top of all this. I don't know. You want to talk about, like, kind of how you stay in the loop?
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess I'd say is, like, you know, you can cover the wave tops, like you said, reading The Times, The Post. BBC, you know, The Economist. Even if you don't agree with the worldview, they cover the entire world in every issue, so mm-hmm. you can at least, you know, oh, I'd forgotten that there's an African election coming up, and I'm going to go research that more, right? So, so there are these these outlets cover wave tops, and then there are these outlets like The New Yorker and The Atlantic that occasionally has the really good ten thousand word piece that you can dig into. I think what I've also tried to do, um, and I'd encourage worldos to do, is if you get interested in particular issues, start digging and pulling the thread on where can I find good information on this. Right, um, to be totally random here, listeners will know I've taken an interest in Hungary because Viktor mm-hmm. Orbán is a particularly creepy nationalist, and it's kind of a, a a laboratory of can opposition overcome something like that. And and so then I find well, what's the great. News source in English from Hungary, Uh, and I found a website called Direct Thirty Six, Direct with a K, right? And that's all this investigative journalism into Orban and his ties to Putin and his ties to right wing forces in Europe, and and suddenly I'm in a whole new universe of information uh, of these Hungarian journalists who know better than what the even the New York Times people are writing about Hungary, right? And you can usually find that. You can usually find that collection of people to follow on Twitter. Um, who are close to an event in Belarus. We had uh, one of them on, and she's excellent. Um, you can usually find maybe a documentary. I mean, I remember Brazil. I've been following that, and uh, I watched The Edge of Democracy, a great documentary about you know the rise of Bolsonaro and the fall of, of Lula and the Brazilian left, uh, and that gave me a lot of context and texture. And so increasingly, there's documentary film, too, about these issues. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so what I encourage people to do is, you know, follow the wave tops to just kind of have a sense of what's out there. And we try to do that for you on Pods of the World. We try to kind of give you, you know, what are the stories that are catching our attention? But if you're interested in Hong Kong or you're interested in Hungary or you're interested in Brazil, there's, you're going to find a whole universe of stuff. You know, people on Twitter, websites, documentaries, you know, even podcasts. Like that's what's nice about this new media environment. You have to do a little bit of work. But I w- again, the, the best thing for me is if you find the 10 people that you can follow on Twitter, they'll guide you I mean, this is totally. where Twitter is actually useful. Like when totally. the SARS movement happened in Nigeria, I just followed a few Nigerians. And me suddenly too. I'm getting links to some pretty cool articles that I never would have seen otherwise, you know?
0: Yeah. Or and, like Josh Wong in Hong Kong, like one of the main yeah. activists. Like follow those people. They'll, they will steer you the right places.
1: That's right. I follow a lot of these activists I met in Hong Kong and they they will steer me and make me see things that I wouldn't have otherwise have seen. One other plug I'd put in is that Karen Atiyah, friend of the pod, you know, the mm-hmm. Washington Post Global Opinions yep. has people like Ron Ayub and Jason Rezaian, you know, one of the best friends of the pod. And uh, uh, had Yamal Khashoggi, you know. Um, so yep. that's, it's almost kind of distinct from the Post. It's not the normal yeah. op ed page, it's the global voices page. Um, but that's another good one to look at.
0: Dude, the Washington Post opinion is like the gold standard of interesting international coverage. they yeah. Karen has done an incredible job. Ben, question for you, because you did so much work on the Paris Climate Accords, how big an obstacle? Do you think sort of the current U.S. adversarial foreign policy relationship is with the Chinese in terms of, you know, getting to an effective international collaboration on climate? There's been some coverage lately, I guess, probably from Obama's book. What was the uh, climate summit where he and Hillary like kicked down the door and like broke into the meeting with the Chinese? Where was that? Like that was, that was in Copenhagen. That
1: was in Copenhagen. And, and yeah, I mean, I. I what was not- that story? Sorry. So I was there. Uh, it's a good story. It's worth a, a minute or two here. So yeah, please. So we show up. And, and the idea of Copenhagen in 2009, it was a UN uh, climate summit. There was meant to kind of come up with a new agreement to replace the Kyoto Protocol, which was, that was the last agreement that a Republican president left. Um, <laughs> you know, Clinton had been a part of that and uh, Bush pulled out and climate kind of foundered internationally. And so these expectations were hugely high that Obama would come in and there'd be an agreement. But none of the work had been done for this. And by the time Obama arrived, it was clear there wasn't going to be an agreement. And the summit had fallen apart. I mean, I cannot overstate how bizarre it was. Like, people were wandering around this area. The the leaders' room that was supposed to be just for leaders, there were like random staffers wandering around in there. Everybody was meeting on sidelines. We had trouble finding foreign leaders. Our staff rooms were in like a mall, so I remember being in a room with a bunch of mannequins briefing like Barack Obama. Oh yeah, I remember
0: hearing about that. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's totally wild. And what we realized is the reason there was no agreement is that the Chinese um, had kind of organized the block of all the developing countries, basically all the non you know, not the US, Europe and Japan, everybody else, to oppose anything that required them to do something. (laughs) The idea was climate change is the fault of the rich countries because they're the ones who caused the problem. So we shouldn't be asked to do anything. And Kyoto, by the way, had not really asked them to do anything. And we obviously took the view that you can't solve this problem unless China is doing something. Um, And so we're trying to figure out a way to sketch a framework for how to keep talks alive. We can't have an agreement, but maybe we can agree on what the framework should be for how the world deals with climate change. And the key countries were China, India, Brazil, South Africa, these countries that are big economies but are are outside of kind of the quote-unquote developed world. And we couldn't find them. We literally couldn't. It was hard for Obama to find a leader for a meeting. They were clearly ducking us, you know. And then we heard that the Chinese were meeting with a bunch of these countries. And so Obama said, look, we're running out of time here. I'm just going to crash their meeting. Um, and so we, we walked into this area where there were all these Chinese security guys, basically the Chinese secret service, and they tried to physically prevent us from entering this meeting. And Obama of course walked through and they weren't going to hit Obama. And he was surrounded by secret service. I got pummeled by Chinese (laughs) secret service guys. I mean, literally knocked on the ground. I remember lying on the ground in the scrum of Chinese security guys and watching like Hillary Clinton and Huma Abedin like draft behind Obama to get into this room, you know, and there in the room, the Chinese premier, a guy named Wen Jiabao, was literally chairing a meeting with Prime Minister Singh of India, Lula of Brazil, Zuma of South Africa, and Medvedev of Russia, the so-called BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. But China was running the meeting, right? So it was a sign of how much China had already emerged by 2009, and Obama just opens up the door and he says, are you ready for me yet Wen?" <laughs> to, to when It was like the most gangster thing I've ever seen You know, in eight years him do. And what he did is he sat down, though. I mean, it was hugely important because he sat down in that room and he hammered out an agreement with the Chinese and these other countries that, okay, we're not going to have an agreement here, but we will agree the goal should be limiting global warming to two degrees Celsius. And that became the Paris target. The goal should be that the richer countries will have to do more, but everybody will have to do something, and everybody will have to be accountable for their pledges. So if, if people commit to reducing emissions, there's going to be some process for the rest of the world to review whether people are keeping their commitments. And there was this idea that to help the poorer countries that you know are developing with coal right now move to clean energy, the richer countries would create some kind of funding mechanism to help them do that. Seven years later, that became the Paris Accords. That's basically what the Paris Accords is. It took seven years to negotiate. Yeah. What is every country doing? What is the reporting mechanism? How do we hold each other accountable? How much funding goes to these poorer countries? But we we got there, and it it really did all start with that um, that meeting. And, and as is quoted in the book, Reggie Love his his personally did say to him afterwards, <laughs> "That was some gangster shit," you know. And it, it was. It was.
0: Reggie's fucking hilarious. I mean, I, I love that story, and I love like the anecdote that also came out of the book about how there's like. Obama wrote about how there's just shitty pens at the G20. Because it kind of does speak to the haphazard, chaotic nature of these international summits. Like you'd think that going to the NATO summit is going to be this big, glitzy, glamorous thing. In reality, you're in like a giant warehouse separated by like dividers. And then do you remember the trip we took to um, India? I don't remember if it was like 2009 or 2010. We went to Delhi and Mumbai. And at one point... Robert Gibbs was trying to get the U.S. press into a pool spray I with Obama and the Indians. And yeah, the Indian security tried to shut the door on him. So we put his foot in the door and they were pushing so hard. He was like, you're going to break my foot, but I'm not going to move it unless they get in. I mean, that was like it was wild, man. Like th- there were some pretty intense times in those things. You could uh, find yourself in a tough spot.
1: I was in a number of scrums, usually with Chinese uh, security, um, but but by the way, we should be the first to acknowledge our security, Secret Service, I'm sure is worse. In ter- I mean, good in terms of what they're trying to do. I don't want to be- suggest it's a negative, but in terms of of not allowing people into certain areas, like the Secret yeah, they're Service serious. does their job. You're right, though. There was this kind of bizarre, like the bigger summons, like the G20s, like you were in these kind of set up like workspaces- and it was kind of amazing to be at a G20 because there'd be this long row of kind of box-like, really unglamorous workspaces that are windowless because they're usually in convention centers. And like there's the US flag on the door of one and then the Chinese flag next to you and the British flag. And I used to love to just kind of pop in to other countries. Yeah. Like, hey guys, Wander what's up? Around. You know? and and and, and it was because it was such a window. It was exactly what you'd expect. Like every country you'd walk in and, and the people there looked just like who you'd expect to be staffing the Saudi leader or the Italian you know, the Italians are in there, it smells a bit like smoke, you know, and everybody's kind of young and kind of hanging out, you know, and uh yeah, so I, I loved it was like a mini United Nations to go to those things. But but Obama's right, like, you know, the swag was usually some like cheap souvenirs, some bad pens, like some bad stationery, like the tote bag. Um, you know, somewhere I have like in my attic, like a whole bunch of like NATO and G20 swag that, um, uh, oh, let's too. Just say it's not that great.
0: Yeah, no, I have like 400 lanyards and Hannah's always like, are, are you going to keep like this NATO summit 2011 lanyard forever? I don't know, but should I throw all this crap out? Like these are, I probably won't get to go to another one. Maybe I should just hang on.
1: So the nerdiest thing I ever did in government is I saved every lanyard. From and, and I went on every single Obama farm trip except like one I think and and I every lanyard and it's nice because you look at them and you remember something about that summit you know I look at the one the Russian G twenty in St Petersburg and the absurd one hour fireworks show that Putin put on to make it seem like he was a czar like that pops in my head you know um, or like Copenhagen I remember that meeting so so there are there are nice triggers to remember you know what were at least interesting experiences
0: yeah the the the, the st- the moment that always sticks out in my head was Obama's big speech about nuclear weapons in Prague and the Prague Castle at the top of this big, beautiful hill. And then me and a bunch of reporters decided to walk back, and we just walked down this hill and across this big bridge with this like mob of people, like a hundred thousand people turned out to hear Barack Obama talk about nuclear nonproliferation. Like it spoke to like the kind of yeah uh, his profile at the moment, the excitement around his existence, basically from a lot of foreign countries.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that was often the best memories of those things were the crowds that would come out um, to see Obama, because they they weren't coming out to see, you know, Xi Jinping, or, or Vladimir Putin. And so you always felt I, it was such a privilege to to not just represent the, the United States, but, you know, also to to work for Obama. I know this sounds Kool-Aid-ish, but, but it's not really just about Obama. I mean, I remember, you know, going to Brazil, and you saw all these Afro-Brazilian, all these black faces along the motorcade route. And it wasn't just Obama, he represented something as a black president. And and I think right. in a lot of countries, my memory is seeing the motorcade crowds being people who were poorer or from minority groups. Again, the, the part of it was you know some admiration they had for the US, part of it was some admiration they had for Obama, but a big part of it was just like the representation that they saw that Obama provided them you know, in these rooms where there totally. usually weren't black people or people who are minorities from their countries.
0: Yeah. And, and Obama and the first lady actually sought out meetings yeah. with those kinds of people, sought out meetings with opposition, sought out meetings with kids, uh, especially when they didn't come from privileged backgrounds, and those were uh, incredibly powerful events. <laughs> and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at com slash friends. Okay, next question. Emmett O'Keefe via Twitter asks, uh, I read... Uh, Robert Draper's Iraq War book. It's a great book. I was struck by the amount of uncertainty in the intel community that was ignored in the lead up to Iraq. In a functioning and honest administration, what is the role of uncertainty in foreign policy decisions? Uh, this is a great question. So yeah. it's very rare that you get a piece of, of intelligence, I think, that is black or white. I mean, you know, Ben, we should. Um, we should talk about the the Trump administration this week, like mysteriously dropping charges on Mexico's former Secretary of Defense, who apparently was a huge drug kingpin, known as like the Godfather to a Mexican cartel. But in that instance, apparently, law enforcement caught him because they were surveilling someone in a cartel, and that person literally said, "Hey, look, El Padrino, the Godfather, uh, is on television." So like the DEA or whoever, they just flipped through the TV, and there he was, and that's how they busted the guy. That never happens, right? Like most intelligence is circumstantial. There's different degrees of confidence in those assessments. There's different kinds of sources. You have human sources, signals, intelligence, et cetera. Just like a long way of saying the, the uncertainty is the thing that's constant. The Bin Laden operation is probably the best example. It was launched on an intelligence case that I think Barack Obama would tell you was 50-50 at best. The problem with the Bush folks in the run-up to Iraq was you, know, you had a bunch of people within the Bush administration seeking out intelligence to fit with a conclusion that they already had made about Saddam Hussein. And they were actively suppressing any and all dissenting views. And on top of that, it came in the context of like post 9-11 hysteria, where there was just this incessant drumbeat to do something, even if it turned out to be catastrophic. But Ben, you know, what do you think about like the uncertainty in a lot of these decisions? I think, you know, maybe it's not just uncertainty, but it's like, There's not often good options that you are presented when you're the president.
1: No. And and, and I think that, you know, in terms of how it should be handled um, and what to watch for, I guess, um, you know, how it should be handled is you should always try to tell people if you're in government, what do you know and what do you don't know? And, you know, why do you feel like you know what you know? And why do you still not have certainty if you don't know for sure? And one thing that people can watch for is when the intelligence community is playing it straight, they do issue these public uh, determinations with a level of confidence—low, medium, high, right? And and this is one of the reasons why the Russia investigation was so notable—is it was a high confidence assessment um, mm-hmm. from the intelligence community, which is you know that's that's them saying like. This is as sure as we could possibly be about something. But oftentimes, you'll hear them say it's a medium confidence or it's a low confidence. This is why I think public testimony from intelligence community officials in front of Congress is useful, because they can poke holes and ask questions and pull threads uh, and try to understand what the deal is. And I, I think, you know, when I look back, you know, you always need to try to be as clear. And this is hard in an age of Twitter and, you know, social media again about what you don't know and this look this was the whole the benghazi issue was when something happens on the other side of the world in the middle of the night you're not going to know exactly what happened if you're sitting in was washington video. What, what happened in benghazi right uh, you know um, and, and so you know susan Rice goes on the sunday shows she said what we thought at the time. And, and and she did caveat it by saying this is what we think at the time, but she did five shows and you could pick things out that she said and say this was too certain. The irony of that whole thing was that the more the thread was pulled, the more it appeared that the video had played a role um, in the attack. We don't have to go down that that rabbit. Oh yeah,
0: road. sorry. I was trying to say there was not a video like there's not like cameras set up everywhere in the world that can tape things. You can learn exactly what happened. I didn't mean the innocence. Of
1: yeah, things, no. I'm and even, even when there was a, 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 you know, when surveillance footage yep. from that scene was found and analyzed, it was just a bunch of dudes rummaging around and like looting stuff that, that didn't yep. necessarily answer all your questions about what the motivation was of the dudes who were there. And part of what was so, I think, corrosive about Benghazi was just the premise that anybody would know exactly what happened, you know, because right. the Republicans are the ones who were also asserting that they knew exactly what had happened. And this was an Al-Qaeda attack. And, and, and th- there were maybe bits of evidence for that, but there was bits of evidence that it was a protest uh, around a video that, in Cairo that had then led to some people to go down to the facility in Benghazi. Again, not to, to revisit that one. It's just a good example of like, we can't know with certainty what is happening everywhere, why it's happening, what the motivations are. And I think you just have to be candid yeah. about that
0: when you're explaining
1: yep. decisions, you know?
0: Yeah, you're not always operating with perfect information. The, the The lesson of Benghazi was probably just don't tell the press anything until you have absolute certainty, but sometimes that's just not an option.
1: Yeah, and, and a case that you were involved in too, Tommy, when we did want to get something out was GOM, the secret nuclear facility that right. the Iranians are right. developing. We had found that there was all this construction happening deep underground at this facility in GOM we had, you know, intelligence that suggested it was nuclear related. They were clearly um, trying to cover up what whatever they were doing there. So when we presented this, we said, "Look, like, look, we think this is consistent with them building a, a new nuclear facility." But then we could kind of put the onus on them and say, "Well, if they're not, the Iranians should should show us and give access to this facility." And lo and behold, they did provide access and it turned out to be a nuclear facility yeah. and that kind of Oops. confirmed it. But I mean, you, know, you can just kind of make your case and say, if you're talking about the actions of another government, give them the opportunity to disprove it uh, to international monitors. And that's why you have these international mechanisms like on nuclear issues. It's not the US intelligence community that was responsible for monitoring and verifying the Iran nuclear deal. It was the International Atomic Energy Agency. And in a lot of fields like this, there are- you know, non-biased international organizations, you know, I, I'm sure people could allege that bias creeps in, but the reason you set these things up is so that there's some neutral arbiters too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Jake asked via Instagram, which sub cabinet posts should we really be paying attention to? Good question. So like, this might be obvious, but I do think that the NSC staff is very important, including like the the deputies, you know, John Brennan, right? Really wanted to be CIA director had to pull out of that because he probably wouldn't have gotten confirmed, became the deputy uh, national security advisor, became the top homeland security advisor, and I think developed such a close relationship with Barack Obama and people in in that orbit that it worked out even better for him, right? And he ultimately became CIA director. Dennis McDonough, our friend, our colleague, was on the NSC. All these senior directors have a lot of influence. But I don't know, Ben, are there any, like, assistant secretaries or sort of, like, I don't know any positions that you think are not paid enough attention to. I mean, if you're an assistant secretary, you're in a lot of big meetings making a lot of important policy before it gets run up to the more senior people like those folks do a lot of work.
1: Yeah, I mean I think the two I'd particularly highlight are the undersecretary of state for political affairs and the undersecretary mm-hmm. of defense for policy. Yeah. Not household uh titles. No. Um but essentially they're each the number 3 person in those buildings. So the undersecretary of state for political affairs is the number 3 person but is generally seen as kind of the top, you know, diplomat among everybody else in the department. Also the person who sat often in the deputies committee meeting, the interagency meeting that made policy recommendations up to the the cabinet level people. This was in our administration, Wendy Sherman, who was the lead negotiator on the Iran deal. Before Wendy Sherman, it was Bill Burns, right? So big figures Mm -hmm. who both, you know, Bill's case, he went on to be the deputy secretary of state. So that's state. And then the undersecretary of of defense or policy, um, in some ways even more important because the deputy secretary of defense is usually someone who thinks mainly about acquisitions, the budget, and not about foreign policy. And so usually it's a secretary of defense and the deputy who's in, you know, looking at this multi-hundred billion dollar enterprise. Yeah. And then the undersecretary of policy is the one who's again in those deputy meetings making policy, being kind of the foreign policy strategist in the Pentagon. So those are the two that jump out. If you have regional interests, the assistant secretaries of state four different regions become very important figures. So like Assistant Secretary of State for Asia, for Africa, because they're the ones running point day to day on these things. And so they become kind of big figures in their own right in these regions. And you know, in the Pentagon, the combatant commanders, who's running Central Command, which was responsible for the Middle East, that person is going to be a very powerful person. Um, So those are some ones to look for.
0: Yeah. Those are very, very big jobs. Ben, this is a good one for you. So TBEVs via Instagram wants to know what it was like engaging with the Vatican on uh, diplomatic international relations issues. I, this, I'm interested in this, too. I never talked to you about this, really. Like, I knew you did Cuba-specific diplomacy with them. But, like, when you're doing diplomacy with the Vatican, are you just, like, talking to some random priest? Or do they have, like, a foreign policy guy? Like, how does this work?
1: So this is a really interesting uh, story for multiple dimensions. Um, you know, they have a diplomatic corps, but it's pretty – it's not – the typical one. When we wanted to do diplomacy with them on Cuba, we knew we were dealing with a very sensitive issue. It was not public that we were doing these negotiations with Cuba, and we wanted the Vatican to play a role. So we went to the person who was the Vatican's kind of point person in Washington for a lot of diplomatic endeavors. Unfortunately, tragically, um, that person was Theodore McCarrick. Um, hmm. Cardinal McCarrick, who'd long been the cardinal in Washington, and it came out after the Obama administration that he was involved in, in child sexual abuse, right? So, Jesus. Um, and that the, the, they just issued a report out of the Vatican that they'd covered this up, you know, for years. So, just put that aside, not because it's not important, but just because we didn't know that at the time. But the way that we really got the wheels in motion here, beyond just the contact with McCarrick where we said we had this interest uh, in Cuba, is that when President Obama saw Pope Francis, he said, I want to work with you guys on Cuba. And Pope Francis essentially deputized a cardinal in Havana, a guy named Cardinal Ortega, to be his you know, point man for, for this initial effort. And McCarrick, when we met with McCarrick agreed to set up a way for Cardinal Ortega to come from Cuba to Washington because it wasn't normal for him to do that. So he set up a lecture for the guy at Georgetown, Catholic Jesuit University, right? So this guy, this Cardinal from Cuba, comes up and gives some lecture at Georgetown. And then we snuck him in the back door of the White House to meet with Obama and me and Dennis McDonough and a couple other people. And he kind of read aloud this letter from the Pope suggesting that he was willing to host this meeting at the Vatican. We then had this phone call uh, with someone in the Secretary of State's office at the Vatican. The Secretary of State is like the foreign minister, and was a guy named Cardinal Peraline. But they don't do any business over email, which in retrospect is very wise. And yep. we, we smart, couldn't- Smart, e- smart. And, and we couldn't tell them how much progress we made. All they knew is they were going to host a meeting with us and the Cubans. And I basically showed up at the Vatican with Ricardo Zuniga, the, the American I was working with, and the Cubans. And we walk in, And the Vatican said, okay, we're going to meet with you, Cardinal Peraline, the Secretary of State guy, who's going to meet with the Cubans first and then with us. So he meets with the Cubans and then I walk in and Cardinal Peraline looks totally stunned. And he says, are you really going to restore diplomatic relations with Cuba? And I said, yes. And he's like, you're really going to take these steps to establish embassies and begin to normalize relations? And I said, yes. And then he looked at me and he said, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) he goes does John Kerry know you're doing this who the fuck
0: is this guy
1: I literally had to explain to this guy who I was but then what was amazing is we had a good talk and they knew Cuba well they'd been there we went into this big ornate room and we read aloud all these commitments that we would made and the Vatican was serving as kind of the third party guarantor we had to to make our commitments to each other in front of the Vatican so that we couldn't break our commitments without the Vatican calling us on it and what was interesting is that there were people in the room all priests who had served in Cuba? That you know, they were overcome by emotion. There were tears in their eyes. At the end, everybody hugged each other, and it was so it was a feeling that was different from dealing with other nations. Um, and I remember the cardinal made the speech. that was quite moving, where he said, "Look, you know, we're neutral. We just want to promote dialogue and peace between nations." And and they meant it. You know, it wasn't just the the standard BS uh, that you hear from some diplomats. So it's. Like dealing with other countries and that they have embassies and they have diplomats everywhere. But it's also very different because it's secretive. Um, it, it's not a lot of email. It's a lot of personal relationships. Um, and what's unique, though, is that Pope Francis, I think has elevated the standing of the Vatican with the people around the world because he's such a revered figure. And so my hope is that going forward on issues like Cuba or on Venezuela or on climate change and other things that the Pope is interested in, that the Vatican can play an, an increasing diplomatic role in, in helping to, to create, you know, uh, essentially space for dialogue.
0: God, let's hope they get back into a uh, smarter policy with Cuba. That would be a great, great change yes. post-Trump. Two quick sort of last ones. Uh, The first is Emily via Instagram wants to know the first place you want to travel once it's safe again post-COVID. Good question. I don't know. This is a hard one. I've really wanted to go to Thailand and Vietnam for a long time, but I think we might have to delete some episodes of this show before I'm able to do that because I don't want to run afoul of uh, some of their crazier laws. I'd like to get back to Italy in a big way. That would be fun. I don't know, anywhere like on your wish list? So for me, um, you know, my
1: my two places that I kind of hanker for the most are like Southeast Asia. Um, the food is great. The places are fascinating. You know, for whether sure. that's Vietnam or Myanmar or Thailand, uh, just a totally different sensory experience from being here. And then just a big, I'd love to be in a big European city. <laughs> you know, Maybe I travel so. a lot to Europe. I just miss, you know, yeah, you want to go to Paris or you want to go to Rome, but I, I, any big European city would, after COVID, it'd be nice to just walk around for several days uh, and hang out. I, I really just miss that feeling of, of landing in a different place and jumping into a different reality.
0: God, me too. Uh, and then last question is, uh, a lot of people ask for any book recommendations. I don't have any new ones. I don't know if you got anything, uh, like I'm going to read Obama's book. Sure. I have this book that I've been meeting. Uh, to read for a while about uh, Kim Jong-un that I was about to start. And then there were all these rumors that he was dead. The great successor by uh, Anna Fatfield, who was covering the White House for a while. Any any stuff on your like nightstand that you're looking to get to? So I, I,
1: I kind of caught people up to speed, I think, last week uh, with a couple of the books I was reading. Um, I guess I will say when I look back on the greatest hits of the last year um, for me, <laughs> in my reading. So these will be repeats, I think. This book, Kleptopia, that I mentioned by Tom Burgess, which really lays bare the kind of corruption of how mm-hmm. authoritarianism works in the world. And you go from you know Putin's Russia to London, to Trump, to all manner of places in between. Kleptopia is a great book. We've talked about Ayad Akhtar's Homeland Elegies on this uh, podcast, I, I, I don't know if I mentioned a book that I read from a, a long time ago called Defying Hitler, hmm. written by a German guy at the time, right? So it was basically about being an ordinary German in in the time when Hitler took power and all the kind of individual choices this guy had to make. He was like a, you know he wasn't a particularly prominent person. he was just like a lawyer in Germany in 1933 when the Nazis got elected. and then having to make choices about you know do you resist laws, do you go along with them? he had a Jewish girlfriend. And what's so interesting about it is I I don't want to suggest that we're living in Nazi Germany here, but like, you'd be surprised how familiar (laughs) some of this is, is like, you know, how abnormal is what they're doing? When should you be alarmed? Or when should you not? Um, Watching somebody work that through in real time when you know that the end of the story is the Holocaust and World War II, it's a fascinating book, uh, this book defying uh, Hitler. And uh, so those those jump out to me.
0: On that same dark vein, I read uh, It Can't Happen Here by Sinclair Lewis, like right after Trump's election, which is basically just about how a fascist takes over the United States. And it was a little too prescient. Um Maybe once Trump leaves office, it might be worth reading. Another fun one, as long as we're talking about Hitler books, uh, have you ever read Look Who's Back? The the, the book, there's a movie of it too. It might even be on Netflix. But the gist is Adolf Hitler wakes up to find himself in the 21st century, like where his bunker used to be, but he has no memory of anything after 1945. So this like real Hitler is just running around Berlin acting like himself and people think it's performance art. But it like is this reflection of sort of like, the culture in him, it's just, it's hilarious. It's great. It's a brilliant book. Highly, highly recommend it.
1: That sounds like a fascinating premise. <laughs> you would love say. it. You would yeah. love it. Uh, yeah. and I, I'll just repeat the, this book. I, the one, because I, the one I am reading now is also really good. Putin's People by Catherine uh, Belton, which goes, really diagrams the oligarchs there quite well. Um, but yeah, we'll uh, we'll, we'll keep worldos appraised here of of, uh, of our. Re- I'm hoping to move out of this dark authority. If people think I'm very strange, because I was also gonna say the origins of totalitarianism by Hannah Arendt, which I I actually reread. Um, as as nerdy as that sounds, I, I'm writing this book, guys. I, I promise you. I will return to, to, to non... You're
0: going to read like a novel.
1: Yeah, I'm going to read some light novels. Uh, but the last two years I've been working on this book of, that delves into authoritarianism. And so uh, that's guided my reading, unfortunately. So that's probably guided some pretty dark, but very good recommendations, uh, uh, I hope.
0: Very good recommendations. Well, uh, hopefully we'll all be a little less dark. Although I just saw a uh, LA County COVID update, We're recording this on Thursday, a week before... Thanksgiving that said five thousand new cases uh, in LA County today, which is horrifying. So everybody stay safe out there. Shit is getting bad. Uh, yeah, happy but, Thanksgiving
1: uh, and stay happy safe. Thanksgiving, brothers. stay safe.
0: Zoom Thanksgivings, lots of turkey, and uh, talk to you when we're all back. Potsey of the World is a crooked media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Special thanks to Quinn Lewis for production support. And thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narm Alkonian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes as videos every week.
1: People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher
0: than fresh, like creator Kate. This Glade Orchid Neroli candle is so fresh. It's like fresh as watching a sunrise in Santorini. Yeah, I'm going to need more of those. Explore the new Glade Fresh collection today.